152 yards should be just a nice, comfortable nine iron for him. They're going to go nuts when he hits this thing. <laughs> Yo, yo, yo. Welcome in, Golf Addicts. Uh, this is the Preferred Lines Podcast. My name is Joe Idoni at Tour Picks on Twitter if you want to give the boy a follow. Um, this is a golf gambling podcast. We're going to talk about this week's professional golf tournament, the Memorial. It's Memorial Day. It all works out great. We've got a fantastic elevated field event sort of right in the heart of the PGA Tour season, and I'm fired up to talk about it. Um, like I mentioned, this is the Preferred Lines Podcast. If you enjoy this show, subscribe on the YouTube channel. Give me a follow on Twitter. Tell a friend. All that good stuff. PLTs. You see, I got it on right now. PL Golf. Let me know as well in the comments. I know a couple of my guys, Ted, are watching this. So I upgraded. I upgraded the StreamYard plan, which is the platform here. Um, I think we're going to get better picture because a couple of you guys have commented that you're like watching it on your TV, and I, I want it to be nice and crystal clear for you on the big screen. So let me know if things are coming through a little clearer today. Um, as always, brought to you by my friends over at the Fantasy Golf Pod. Make sure to check out their program as they are huge supporters of this show. Okay. I'm super excited to talk to this guest. We were just talking before we went hot a little bit um, about some course stuff and basically about his life and all the things that he's got going on. So I'm ready to bring him on. Let's let's do it. Bring welcoming in to preferred lines now on the tee for his first appearance on the show at the Degenerate 75. The world knows him as the greatest showdown player in DFS. What's up, James? I mean, not much. It's just it, it, some people would call it a holiday. I call it time to start grinding the next week because, I, I mean, I love the Memorial. It can't be two tournaments outside of the majors. I love more than this tournament. And I've been watching your show for many a moons now, and uh, I'm excited to be on here with you. So it's like uh, it, it's a good it's a good spot for Monday night. Pleasure to have you here, man. One of my favorite tournaments as well. Growing up in Ohio, this was the second tournament that I was ever attended uh, as I started following golf. Tiger won that year. Um, it was fantastic. The Firestone was the first, and then Memorial was another staple for me and my buddies to drive down. Um, good evening to everyone in the chat. Ted, what's going on? Uh, C.F. Lloyd, uh, one of your guys coming over to the show. Love to see you. Brian's in here. Let's talk a little bit real quickly um, about what we saw last week at the Charles Schwab. I know that you were away on a trip. I had some family things going on as well. But electric finish, Emiliano Grio finally gets it done. Do you have any Grio in DFS this week, James? Uh, so, uh, in full disclosure, I really liked Emiliano last week. Like he was like the kind of guy I was thinking that like he was one of the first dudes I tagged. I'm playing him, but then you know I do this every Wednesday night where I like I got to start cutting down this pool. And I thought, you know what, Thursday a.m. is going to be the time I want my guys out there getting their bread and butter. The course is going to be soft from the rain they got Wednesday. So I kind of taught myself into only playing AM PM guys that were like lower down the board. And, uh, you know, that didn't really even come to fruition. It ended up being almost exactly the same. But that's how I get off a guy like Rio, even though I liked him. And uh, afterwards, I was I was full of regret and remorse. Yeah. So I've noticed this trend recently over, I would say, the last month where there's a guy playing fantastic golf and he'll come into an event and be very popular from a public sentiment standpoint in terms of ownership in DFS and betting. He's on everybody's betting cards. He's in everybody's lineups. I think about Wyndham Clark at the Mexico Open. 
blows up everybody's lineup, destroys your betting card, comes out the next week and wins. Then Jason Day at the Wells Fargo, right, on everyone's card. He's won here before. He's playing great, blows up everybody's lineup, then wins the Byron. Um, it just seems to be this path. I know Grio was extremely popular one to two weeks ago when he was playing fantastic, and then he gets the win. Is there something to be said about just seeing a guy playing well and sticking to it even after a really bad week? Yeah, I think uh, I would say one of the more overrated things in golf betting slash DFS is like the knee jerk reaction to one week. If I see a guy trending really well over a four to six week period and, you know, he just he just spins his wheels a little bit the week before or maybe even plays poorly and misses the cut. Well, a lot of times those numbers can be a little misleading because when you only play two rounds, you're only getting half the strokes gain data that you would normally get from that person and say that he didn't miss the cut on the number and he goes out that weekend and has two great rounds. Well, you would still be just enamored with how well they're playing. So anytime I'm looking at recent form, I always make a point to not overweight the previous week too much or even really the previous two weeks. Uh, but I like to look at more like that, that 12 to 24 round range, because uh, I, I think form is a is a general thing and not just something specific to the last time you saw them. Got it. That's a great point. So this show is primarily what I focus on when I found my niche and what I'm good at is sort of the gambling space. I know that you found and carved out your space, which is extremely impressive in DFS. How would you explain to someone who's relatively novice at both the differences between the two markets and how like sort of the nuances between them are, are, are changing? Yeah. So the biggest difference we're talking between betting and DFS, correct? Yes. Yeah. Correct. The biggest difference is, is in betting, it, it, it's way more of a, of a community, right? People want to hear everybody else's picks and then share those picks and then be happy together when they win. That's a, it's a much more of a brotherhood of a community, right? And everybody, mm-hmm. when, the, when the popular guy wins, everybody celebrates together and shows their tickets and it's great. Whereas in DFS, it's almost the exact opposite. I want to know who the, the whole community is celebrating and wanting to play. So I can specifically not play that guy. And then when Jordan Spieth misses the cut at 28%, I like to go dance on their graves uh, because I didn't play him while all their lineups are dead. So uh, I, I guess the biggest difference would be is that in one, you're playing uh, a game against the people and the other one, you guys are playing a game together against the books. Yep, that's exactly what I was going to say. A game against the other players versus a game against the books. You sum that up great. Um, so the I wanted to ask you just a little bit on the air. We talked a little bit off a bit about how you've sort of made this transition into DFS being a full-time gig. I think it's extremely impressive. I love the sort of grind in terms of showdown and still producing content from basically Thursday to through Sunday. Tell me about what like the last three years and how this sort of has changed your life in terms of fantasy. And is it mostly primarily driven by golf or do you focus on other sports as well? I mean, I also do football, but I'd be lying if I didn't. I mean, PGA is just my bread and butter. I've just I've just been a long-term winner at it way longer. I know it way more in depth. The game, the edge is so much more real at PGA than it is at NFL because, well, first of all, there's just so much more great content and tools at NFL than there is at PGA. Uh, and second of all, uh, NFL, NBA, sports like that are just so much more predictive than uh, PGA. And that's what people want when they play DFS, where you know PGA DFS is just icky and gross and unpredictable and doesn't make sense quite often. And you have to embrace that. Uh, as far as like how the, the past few years, you know, I really was just a normal dude that was like winning enough at this, enough that I, you know, quit being a teacher for a while and well, I <laughs> since for like five years ago, and I have just been playing DFS. And then I uh, became friends with Andy Lack. I think he does like the best, you know, I just think he makes some of the sharpest content out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, he was, he was kind enough to have me on a show and uh, I, you know, I really enjoyed being on there. Um, and uh, he helped me, you know, 
realized that this is something I enjoy doing. So I was like, you know what, Andy, no one does showdown content. I think I'm going to do a showdown show. And then uh, I just made it because honestly, when you're 37, you shouldn't be retired and not doing anything. So I just did it as a hobby and didn't realize that PGA DFS needed a showdown show so badly. And it uh, just found a little market and uh, that's it. And now I just make content. And if you would have told me that I would be a 39 year old man making YouTube content, I would have laughed at your face, but it's pretty awesome to make content over the thing you love. And I love PGA DFS. It never once feels like a job to me. Yeah, I agree, man. I love the, I love what we do. It's like a full time for me still sort of I would consider this uh, a a very much full time hobby. Like I put in the hours I put in the time. Um, I haven't figured out a way necessarily to convert into making a living off of it. But but I'm working there. I'm working to sort of get into your level. Um, DFS. Explain to me the the playing against other players aspect. Are you trying to figure out the memorial, for instance, this week? preparation work is it mostly dependent are you trying to isolate a certain stat or a certain analytic that other people aren't factoring in this week and trying to find that sort of diamond in the rough or does it all come down to ownership no monday and tuesday i'm just like you and uh, all 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 your normal sports better guys right i'm out there i'm making my model you know i think models have a have a place uh, to help us become better players of both sports betting and at dfs and i'm looking at guys i like i'm looking at cer- certain metrics i want to know guys who play these long difficult 72 courses well uh guys who are really good at greens and regulation on difficult courses uh you know guys who are going to be playing from the fairway uh you know it's like good drive to uh, a percentage and stuff like that and i'm making a pool and i'm looking at guys i like i'm already thinking of guys that i'm okay uh, uh giving up because i've been doing this so long i instantly know almost who's going to be chalked based off their salary right i've looked at no ownership this week and i know patrick cantley is going to be super owned right um so <laughs> like I, I i can already start trying to come up with reasons to fade that can i cuss on here mm-hmm I'm just coming with reasons to bait to to fade his boring fucking face. So uh, that uh, uh, that that's 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 what I'm doing Monday through Tuesday. I don't even really start playing the game until Wednesday, the day that everything gets real. That's when I start looking at ownership and asking myself the hard questions about is it, is it worth paying 28 percent to play Jordan Spieth, even if I do love him? And the answer is always no. And it, you know, is know. it? Yeah. Oh, high owned Jordan Spieth is the easiest fade of all time. Got uh, okay. it. Maybe a high owned Morikawa because that dude's a chump. Uh, but, uh, that's what I'm doing. And then I start looking at things like the weather and I start looking at, uh, things like their win equity, their top 20 equity, their optimizer equity versus how likely they're, or how owned they're going to be. And I just start asking myself some questions that justify it. Like Scotty Scheffler was ridiculously popular last week, but his win equity was so much higher than everybody else's. I just felt I had to justify eating it. So I played a lot of Scotty Scheffler last week. What would you say is the most overrated or overinflated stat in terms of creating a model that most people will factor in that you don't think is important at all. Yeah, just like very generic scoring. And I make this joke like literally every week on my show when they're like, oh, but John Rom's number one on my model. Really? You made a model and the best fucking player is number one? Shocking. Just shocking that like they they treat their model like the end all be all and they fill it just full of like the most plain Jane stats, right? Like Patrick Cantley is good at uh, par four scoring. Really? Patrick Cantley, like the third best player in the world, is good at par four scoring. Who mm-hmm. would have who would have ever known that without a model? 
So they, yeah. they fill it full of generic statistics and then they they over rely on, and they're surprised when the top players show up on there. But those top players, you know, like they're always going to show up well on there. That's why they're the highest ranked players because they score the best stats. And so this is why I know to, to, to really just take bits and pieces from it and look at like kind of different statistics. Like, you know, not a lot of people are looking at who plays well on long, difficult par 72s this week. That is a very, very specific niche thing to look for. And I want to see those guys who do it, what courses they did it at, when they did it and why they did it they do are they doing it on approach are they doing it off the tee and i'm trying to get a feel for the kind of guys that play well in those conditions and then see how that transfers over to the course that we are playing that week so on fantasy national are you utilizing the filters a lot in terms of isolating different it's like you know filter situations for each stat yeah so i mean to be honest i'm not i'm not i am no cheerleader for fantasy national but i do use it because they're the only ones i have found that has the mixed condition model where i can go look at these stats from different time ranges a lot of times with approach i just want to see how a guy's been hitting his approach the last eight or 12 rounds right just who's really been on fire with their irons but sometimes i want to look at around the green and know who is a long-term player that's really good around the greens over say the past 75 rounds a lot of times with putting, I want to look at long-term statistics, yet when I'm looking at something like uh, 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 ball striking, I only want to see their last 24. So I'm looking at these you know, these different metrics from different time zones because sometimes I want to know if they're a good long-term player at that statistic, and sometimes I want to know if they've just been trending at that statistic. Course history, real or does it depend on the stop or is it one of those things that are is, is fake news? It's so real, and but it's not real for why everybody says. This has been my my move, my new thing in 2023 is strokes gain psychology, right? Everybody thinks that course history, this guy plays well here because it is a good course fit. And that may be true. But what really, what I really think guys play well at courses, why guys have good course history that's, that is often sticky is they've played well there before. And just like me, when I go to Lincoln East, the little shithole course in Oklahoma City, when I go there, I play the best rounds of my life. Why? Because I got strokes game feel good off the first tee. I know I'm going to play well on that course. I've played there well very many times. And when I do it, I, I have a certain level of confidence and comfortability that I don't have when I was playing in Portland, shooting a 53 on the front nine uh, Saturday. So in the same way, in, in that same sense, then, are you downgrading people who have bad strokes game course history psychology? Like I think a Rory this week, not only is his like mental state in flux in general, he didn't really like this place. And he's talked about it. And he's talked about sort of ripping the par five renovations and some of the changes that were made. And he just shows up to this place and it just doesn't fit his eye. Um, you you play that the same way as you would play it for somebody. It's also to be against them. Absolutely. I, I rarely hold no course history against somebody because we just don't know. And I, I feel like we project too much in the sport, but bad course history, I definitely factor that in, right? Especially if like it's a whiny bitch like Hatton or McElroy. Well, they're just looking for a reason to be upset and to not play well that week. So yes, I definitely hold it against them. Interesting like situation this week where we did have this massive renovation, all 18 greens redone. I think that you know, I talked to Pat Mayo. That show will be out tomorrow, by the way, a little bit ago about it. And I think what happened was, this is my opinion, but I think Jack Nicholas saw kind of the method that Bryson was taking to just basically punishing golf courses and carrying all the bunkers out of play and just pounding it down there. And what he did was he sort of pinched fairways in the further you go down, move the bunkers back to kind of like Bryson proof this golf course mm -hmm. in a sense, is I think what sort of spurred the initial sort of renovation. But what I found interesting is after massively redoing a lot of aspects of the course, the same kind of guy showed up. And it was no real surprise because they're the best players, but we had Cantlay, Morikawa, Rom the following year, who all basically had wins here right before the renovation. 
do you are you okay going back to course history from 2018 or 2019 even given the renovations or are you downplaying that a little bit this week yeah i mean i really when i made my model i was trying to only kind of look at the statistics that i saw that really were popping from the previous two years but you are right the course history does really it is pretty sticky over the past five years the guys who were doing well before the renovation and after it there does seem to be something there but you know just to kind of look at for what the course was now i really focused on the last uh uh two times out because that's all we've really seen this course since the renovation um, and you know, that's what I focused on, by the way, on your, uh, uh, Bryce improving it, then you have really small greens that are super fast and firm. So when you are hitting out of that fairway rough, good luck trying to keep it on the greens on, uh, uh, no matter what club you're hitting out of that rough. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the course real quickly. So you mentioned it there, obviously the wider than average fairways, second shot golf course, classic Jack Nicholas design, but one of the more penal, the further you get off the fairways, if you miss it by two yards, you know, Corey Connors is always going to miss his fairways within five yards of basically the, where the rough line is. He'll be fine. You miss some of these, like Rory was missing shots at Oak Hill, 25 yards left and right. You're in the water, you're dead. Um, that's one of the big things about this course. Obviously it's, it's sort of defined in my opinion by its greens they're lightning fast they're firm they're two years old so last year we had some rain earlier in the week which i think softened it up but everyone mentioned on sundays it was brutally hard the year before that on sunday um it was insane i think only one guy in the entire field broke 70 that day it was matthew fitzpatrick um the scoring average was 78 on that sunday Pretty wild stuff. It's a tee to green test, in my opinion. Rom and Cantlay are two of the absolute best. No surprise, they've been really good here as well. Par five scoring is is really where you get it done. And you talked a little bit about par four scoring as well. So interested in your opinion on this, but it seems to be like you play the entire course level par, and you try to play the par fives three under. That gets you to twelve under for the week. You're going to basically be right there. So this is kind of. You know, people talk about it being Nicholas's ode to Augusta. There's definitely some tricky around the green play where if you miss it, it's there's thick rough, there's bunkers, oftentimes pins that leave you relatively short-sighted. So there is that test. Um, but I think it's a complete examination of, of a golfer. And, and it's a great course that we see annually play as one of the tougher setups. Like you mentioned, 7,500 yards, par 72 setup that is going to play typically to a winner around 10, 12 under par, which is really difficult for what we see in traditional par 72s on the PGA tour. I think it's going to be pretty comparable to what we just saw at the PGA championship. I don't think it's going to be that far off from that. The kind of guys, the same reason that I liked Corey Connors so much at the PGA championship is the same reason I like Corey Connors this week. I think yeah. it's going to be a real second shot course. I think it's going to be a course where you're going to need to be hitting greens and regulation and you better be really good from 150 uh, through 200, probably even 200 plus. Cause there's going to be so many shots in that range. Uh, that uh, you need to be hitting them. And you better be hitting them out of the fairway because if you're trying to hit a uh, 187 yard out of the rough on a tiny little fast uh, baked out greens, good luck, brother. Good luck. Yeah. How much do you, how much importance do you put on a week like this in terms of around the green play? Uh, so I, I'm pretty torn on this. I think you do need to be able to be good around the green, but I've, I, 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 I have kind of been buying into the theory recently that when around the green gets super tough, it really starts to shrink the margin between the good players and the worst players. Um, which, which almost sounds counterintuitive. You would think the harder it is, the bigger that gap would be. But I think it's quite the opposite because they're going to get such chewy lies and these around the greens. And then you've got to chip it onto firm, fast, undulating greens. 
it, it's going to be so hard to get up and down from the rough that I, I think you're going to see it around 50%. And even the worst players, Hovland, you know, that's everybody's go-to child for shitting on around the green. He can get 50%. And if he's basically playing the field average around the green and he's going to be ball striking like he has been, well, then I think that that makes him even more in play at a course like this uh, with yeah. the really difficult around the green. So I do factor it in, but in a different way than probably most people are. Really impressed with his progression, by the way, at the PGA. He's got some new shots, and he's got some new techniques, and they're actually paying huge dividends for him. I So since I primarily focus on outright betting, I put a little bit more emphasis on around the green, as I ultimately feel like if you're trying to figure out, like DFS, you want a lot of guys to finish in the top 15, top 20. But the winner, of the actual winner of the tournament, the separating factor is oftentimes around the green. I look back to last year. Um, basically Billy Horschel, Patrick Cantlay, and Aaron Wise, T to green were almost identical. Um, excuse me, off the tee and approach numbers were very similar. Even putting numbers were very similar. Horschel gained a stroke per round on all three of those guys around the green. That's where he won the tournament. That's why he won by four strokes. It, you see it so many times week in and week out. I mean, Brooks got everything up and down. Hovland was great. Like That's where these guys are sort of making their move to the top. Uh, but putting is is just a weird thing, and it's a weird one here. That So I put more on around the green and less on putting. For instance, I, I was looking at this earlier. This is one of the crazier things you'll ever see. You will we'll never again, I don't think ever again, have back-to-back weeks hosted at the same venue. I don't mm-hmm. know if we may ever see it again. We had that weird situation yeah. here where we had the work day and the memorial back-to-back weeks on the PGA Tour. Colin Morikawa won the workday. He gained five strokes putting. The next week, the exact same golf course. Granted, a little bit faster greens. He lost eight and a half putting. A 13 stroke swing and strokes gave putting. This is why we talk about this quite often. But actually seeing it on the exact same golf course four days later being such a flip is pretty wild stuff. Yeah. Oh, well, first of all, if we ever see it again, that probably means we have another worldwide pandemic. And yeah. uh, if, if I never live through another one of those, I'll consider it an, uh, a happy life. Um, yeah, with the, with the whole Morikawa thing, I, you know, he really is a horrendous putter on fast greens. This week, when I'm looking at putting, I'm actually more worried about guys who putt well on lightning greens than I am guys who putt well on bent grass. Because I'm telling you, it is really easy to have a 16-footer and roll it by five or six foot and have way, way too much meat left on your bone for your comebacker. Um, and so uh, I, I need those guys that are not going to be three-jacking from like, you know, 16 feet because they get a little too frisky with their downhillers. Um, so that, 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 and I think that that's what happened with Morikawa, just the faster those greens get, the more that he becomes like a no-go for me. So you mentioned earlier that, um, anytime you get really difficult around the green game, sometimes that mitigates the difference between someone who's really great around the green and not so much. What about that theory sort of applied to putting in a sense with really, really lightning fast greens? Does that shrink the gap between really bad putters? Like I think, I don't know, Corey Connors putted really well at the PGA Championship, but sometimes can struggle. Sir, sir, he missed a three-foot par putt to cost me a third Fantasy Golf World Championship ticket. Do not tell me Corey Connors putted well. Oh no! Well, he gained uh, almost four and a half stroke he putting. Did. He just—he just missed the one that I needed. That motherfucker. Missed the one you needed. Just, yeah. But I, what, I, what about the theory in general? Like fat, really fast, difficult greens. Does that shrink the gap between the good and the bad? I don't think so. I—I I, I don't okay. buy that. I—I'm I, more the other way. Really slow greens. Uh, I, you know, I, I think that that helps the bad putters. You know, I, I, and this is probably the worst example I could give because of myself. When I'm on slow greens, I'm a pretty good putter because you can pump with confidence, right? Uh, guys, all you got to do is go look at the statistics. Go look at guys like Denny McCarthy, Brennan Todd, are guys that are our typical killer putters. 
their their uh, splits between when the, the you know they're good putters when it, whether they're fast, slow, bent, Bermuda, whatever uh, metric you want to look at, they're great putters on any of them, right? But where they're where they start to see the biggest increase from their competition is when you start to put them on really fast greens. It really separates them because they have so much more touch and feel on those greens, and they don't let putts get away from them. They don't they don't have 35 feet and blow it by 11 feet. They just don't do that. Uh, yeah. So I actually think that good putters on lightning greens become even more important that's a good take any other sneaky little stat things you got factored in this week uh well i mean the, you know i've already told you about the long irons that i'm looking at uh mm-hmm. the good drives um you know really i just want to see guys who've been ball striking recently because i don't i i, I don't if, if you haven't been playing at least competitively off the tee and on approach recently i think you're already done right um you know like i, I if you don't at least have those two parts of your game going above average you're already off you're already off my chart i don't care how good you're putting or how good you're chipping if you're not going to be able to get to the green uh and give yourself a lot of birdie looks you know just green and regulation doesn't even have to be legitimate birdie looks just make sure you're always on in a green and regulation i don't think you have any chance this week so recent ball striking is something that i was really looking at heavier on good drives gain or distance do you got a lot of distance oh. factored in this week or no I have zero distance factor, Dan. I think, as you already pointed out, the fairways, they really do close uh, down around the 300-yard mark. You have uh, a very punitive rough, and you have strategic bunkers. And any of those three things that then have to hit a 180-yard shot to the green on a a long par four is not where you want to be. So I don't mind the short hitters this week. My ideal player would be somebody like a Corey Connors or an Emiliano Grillo or these guys that put it out there a little bit shorter than the top dogs, right? They're probably out there at 290, but they hit it straight so much more frequently yes. than, than a Rory does, right? And uh, that that's much more what I would rather have. I would rather have Corey Connors from 190 out than Rory McIlroy from 160 out in the rough. Exactly right. Yeah. And he's a great player. Like looking at the, you know, approach proximity distances, like you're going to have more from basically 175 to 225 this week and players that are good at that Connor, it's one, it's one of the strength of Connors without a doubt. Yeah. He, that he always hits from that distance. So he's pretty good yeah. at it. He gets a lot of practice from that distance. When you're looking at approach play, what's your, what do you think is the best? How far back do you go? Are you short term, 12 round focus, 24? Do you look at last 50? Do you have a go-to there or do you mix it up depending on the event? Yeah, you got to, I mean, so first of all, if you're looking at proximity, right, how they hit in those certain buckets, the 155 or the 150 to 175, 175 to 200, those types of buckets, I think you usually want to look a little more long-term, right? Because if you just look at, say, four, eight, or 12 rounds from those distances, you could literally be looking at something like five or six shots in that time period, depending on what courses they played, right? So uh, when I'm looking at proximity, I definitely look at it at a minimum of 24, but usually, you know, a larger sample, because I want to know historically, are they good at that range? Whereas when I'm looking at just, you know, like things like ball striking and recent form, of course, I want to see how their approach has been doing really well recently. Their past four, eight, 12 rounds, stuff like that. So that's how I differentiate it. Very good stuff. Great insight there all the way around. Let's get to the betting board. Let's see if we find a couple guys. Top of the board this week. Scott Scheffler plus six fifty. Uh, John Rahm's also coming in at seven and a half to one. Then we get to Patrick Cantlay ten to one. Rory McIlroy's fourteen to one. The best number available right now on OddsCheckers.com. Xander Shoffley is fourteen to one. Um, and let's just throw Victor in here at twenty to one. James, I know this is like not necessarily your wheelhouse, but you understand the golf players. You understand odds. You understand sort of leverage positions. Um, who would be your go-to if you had to make a play, sort of in this top of the board? 
So first of all, it's like a really weird time. I, I've been doing golf for over seven years now, and I've never seen a time where there was just two players that were just so definitively better than everybody else. Like every time they go on the course, it seems like you could take those two versus the rest of the field, and it would almost be a fair bet, right? Yeah. Uh, obviously, talking about Scheffler and Rom, they're just—it just seems like they just take turns winning tournaments, right? And so that it, it adds a whole new dynamic to it, right? This is kind of like a, a, a Diet Coke version of Tiger Woods, probably what he was, right? These two added up, probably had about the same win equity as Tiger used to have back in his prime. And it's just crazy yeah. how often these two get there. Um, so as far as betting, like how would I incorporate that? Well, it makes it really tough because their win equity is insane. Those two guys really do have win equity. But the good news is, is when you have two guys up there pulling all of that win equity up top, I think that that's going to lead you to some, you know, more fair numbers for some of these other guys. Right. Um, yes. And so like right off the bat, like the first guy I, I, you know, I would consider, you know, cause he's number one in my model uh, would be, you know, like Patrick, did you say, yeah, Patrick Cantley's third on the thing. Right. And you yes. said, what? yeah. Problem is I, with those two guys above him, I would want him, I would want to get him more like 14 to one. Would you say his yes. best odds were 10 to one? Yes. That's so that's so low for a guy that's definitively the third best. Agree with you 100%. Patrick Cantley is great. I would love to bet him here, but if you're going to take him 10 to 1, he's you you have to factor in that Rahm and Scheffler are a lot better than him. Like there is a gap there between them two and Patrick Cantley. I don't care about the course fit. I don't care about the history of those two guys. Like this run that Scotty Scheffler is on right now is unbelievable. John Rahm, like somehow we're gotten to this point where I bet him at the Masters and it felt like he got a little bit forgotten. Like He's won like seven of the last 15, 16 tournaments. He's teed it up in. He's playing fantastic. He's unbelievable here. The year that he tested positive for COVID was literally on track to be one of the best strokes game performances ever. He was gaining, James, a stroke like every 2.1 holes that he played. <laughs> he was gaining a stroke on the field. Like almost 21 strokes game through three rounds. It was absolutely outrageous. Um, but those two guys, I... I the way that I structure my card is I usually will try to end up if I hit a winner. And I've talked about this before for anyone new to the show. I've done some old YouTube stuff on it that you can look up. But I try to be around 8 to 1 um, total all in, all my bets. If I hit a winner, it's 8 to 1. What that equivalates to uh, in terms of a PGA Tour season is I've got to hit about 6.5 winners to be profitable on the year. Done so every year for the last four years. It's it's attainable, right? It's less attainable if you take one of these guys, in my opinion. And you just have to be willing to understand how good they are. And they're going to, between the two of them, win six events a year. And you've got to take those L's. But for me, like, I love the option of having these two guys here because I feel like you get really good players at, like, 5x the price. Like, there are three guys. And we'll kind of jump to the mid-range because I don't have anyone at the top here that I have interest in. I kind of like... Xander this week a little bit, but I have no interest in 14 to one. The price is silly on I, him. I, I would need I would need 20 on Xander just it was such a top heavy field, but I do agree he's a good one. Yeah. Uh, just real quick with that first group, though. I guess he's technically the start of the second group, but like this is a guy I don't like. I constantly shit on him. But if you made me bet somebody just looking at those those odds right there, Morikawa at 25 would be the first place that I would consider because I think Morikawa is a chump and he's overrated. But man, when the guy plays, he is definitely a winner. And I would feel like it. You know, one out of every 25 times, if he's playing, he's definitely going to win this tournament, something like one out of every 10 times. So, yeah. uh, you know, and he's been, his ball striking has been trending. So I will say that in his defense. Without a doubt, the last five rounds, averaging 4.9 on approach, which is well above sort of his baseline. So 
he's not getting the finishes that you would expect when Colin Morikawa gains five strokes ball striking, like one top 10 in his last seven starts. And he's gaining 9.4 on approach, 3.2, 4.3, 3.2, 4.5. Like he's picking up the numbers where he should be picking them up, but he's just not transitioning and turning that into solid finishes. He's, he's not really in contention anymore. Yeah, he's just definitely not putting it together. Sometimes he's killed. I mean, he almost always killing himself with his putter. But what I'm kind of surprised to see is just how, you know, how home he's been off the tee recently. I, you know, I mean, he's gaining overall, but just not at the level he needs to to make up for his poor uh, short game. Yep. Um, a couple of interesting ones here. Hatton 28 to one day, 30 to one. I this next group, all almost all of them have my attention. I have a couple of bets in already. But I do feel like this is the best value range on the board. It starts at Justin Thomas, 30 to 1, Sungjae, 35, Cam Young, 40, Hideki, 40, Spieth, 40, Fitz, 40. These guys are Fitz, Spieth, Matsuyama are major championship winners. Justin Thomas is a major championship winner. Sungjae M is questionable, but I do feel like 35 to 1 is the best number we've gotten on Sungjae in a while off two bad performances. It feels like a buy low spot like we talked about earlier. Somebody that's just burned people. Same with Cam Young. Somebody that's just absolutely burned people's lineups and betting tickets and lit them on fire and missed the cut in a couple of weeks. All of a sudden now, instead of paying 20 to 1 or 25 to 1, you get 35 or 40. Like These are the spots that I kind of look for to, to maybe jump back on a guy. See, to me, this is where this is the DFS range to me, right? Like a guy like Hatton and M. Cam Young, those are guys that I would never want to place an outright bet on to win. I just don't think they win enough to justify the equity right. you have to play in them. But at the same time, I feel like they have tremendous top 10 equity, which is what we need over in our little DraftKings world. But that doesn't help us unless we're doing each ways over here in the betting world. So it's hard for me to even look at them on outrights when I always just kind of have them pegged in the back of my head as like, oh, those are top, you know, that guy's going to finish T8, but no way he's going to win. You're right. And I think those two guys you mentioned, Sung Jay and Cameron Young, have great top 10 equity. They have great, for the most part, although the last two weeks is a bit of an anomaly, they have a really good stability and, and pretty high floor based on the caliber. But the guys under them, Hideki, Speed, Fitz, they're winners, man. And I look at the case of like, I was talking about this last week a little bit, like this Sung Jay versus Sam Burns, right? They're both really good players. And to me, you have to pick the right market in where you're playing them. DFS is a spot where I think Sungjae has an advantage. Head-to-head matchup betting, Sungjae is going to have an advantage. You want to hit an outright winner? Bet Sam Burns. Bet Sam Burns 50-1 to 1 every week. He's won five times in the last two years. Sungjae's won zero. Five versus zero. Like, he's going to miss six cuts, but you just keep betting him 50-1, to 1 and he's shown that it, when it gets it going, like, he can close the deal and win tournaments. I wish there was somebody on Twitter who would go look at like the past two years and say, if I bet, if you bet a hundred dollars every time Sung JM started uh, and you placed outright wins on him, you would be down. I would guess something like, I don't know, $8,000, right? Yeah. But if you did that for Sam Burns, a hundred dollars every week over the past two years, you'd probably be up something like 25 grand. Yep. Uh, and so like, and th- that's to the point, right? And when it comes to sports betting, this is why I, you know, like I wish it was a little bit easier to do here in Oklahoma. Uh, that, that's how I would always be thinking. Uh, guys yep. like Fitz, Spieth, and Decky, I just love all three of them. Like those guys are winners that can go win, especially at a long, tough course. 
Um, but at the same time, they're also guys, you know, Fitz missed the cut at the PGA Championship. Uh, Spieth missed it last week, and Decky is the king of just random withdrawing, right? But you don't really care about that at outrights, right? You're just playing for their for their uh, their outlier outcomes, which those three guys seem to have way more outlier outcomes than our boys like Hatton and M and Cam Young. Yeah, absolutely. So Spieth and Hideki are the two that I I have in of the bunch right now. Mm. Um, I just think Spieth is on a fantastic run. I'm not really putting much stock into the injury. I'm not sure the reasoning. I'm not sure the um, entire details of what's going on there, but I don't think it's affecting his performance. I just think he had a bad week. Um, Good course history here was in really good form before this news came out at Quail Hollow. So I'm just going to kind of bank on that continuing and 40 to one on a course like I don't know if his goal was to make this thing like Augusta national, I'm going to play Jordan Spieth at 40 to one. And then Hideki is hit or miss. Um, I, I do feel like the upside is there. I really like his short game. I, I went back and I was looking at it. I almost forgot that he was disqualified last year at the Memorial for the, um, it was like white out or something on the three. Wood. Oh yeah. That? I do remember that. Yeah. Yeah. He got it was the like, it was, it was on here. the, it was on the face of the club. Right. And they said, yeah, you can't have like a foreign substance on the face of the club. Yep. And they yeah. caught him. Like it was on the camera mid round and they stopped him a couple of holes later and DQ'd him. Uh, what, what is Decky? Is he 40 to one? Yes, forty to one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I mean, that's that's I mean, pretty it's good. Five odds. times the price of Chef or of Rom. So it's right. like, you know, yeah, that, they hold a ton more win equity. But I agree that like if they play this thing out, I like those guys a little bit better. And then I'm getting close on Thomas. I'm getting close on Fitzpatrick. Do you have a lean between those two in terms of getting a little bit better number on Fitz? But where are you at with Justin Thomas? I, I I mean honestly he just he, I I I don't I I never play him so I, I like okay. I don't really like to bet him I just I feel like he's uh, I think he is kind of like the uh, you know like he's like the the Walmart brand of like all the elite players, like, you know, like, Oh, you know, Dr. Thunder, so to speak. And so like, uh, I, I just, I, I think he's like just so overrated and he still gets put with that top echelon. I'm just glad to see my buddies over at DraftKings finally pricing him like the, you know, a good player that he is and not the elite player that everybody thinks he is. So for me, I'm a Matthew Fitzpatrick guy. Yes. The guy burned me good at the PGA championship, but, uh, who cares? The guy, whenever he has his game, he, it can, he can grind all four facets of the game long, fast firm courses uh i love him okay that little, that little dorky looking giraffe the guy can play some golf uh, he really can. kinds of courses of the guys that we've mentioned here um i disregarding the top two scheffler and rom and can't lay i'll say that because they're all going to eat up a lot who's the highest owned do you think it's going to be spieth at 8900 oh no uh the dfs community has a bad habit of that guy screwed me last week i'm never playing him again and uh-huh. so Jordan Spieth, even though he's a good price this week, no one's going to yeah. play him because they're all salty that he missed the cut last week. And they, they you know, their reptilian brains, they hold grudges against these guys. And now he's going to go, you know, screw them two weeks in a row when he gets T2 this week. Who are they going to go to, you think? Uh, so in this, I mean, it just off the top of my head, this range, like I, I, I assume Ricky because he's been the darling for a while. I know Hatton's going to be high owned um, yeah. and uh, probably Connors. I've already heard a couple touts talking up Connors. So if I had to bet, those would probably be the three. Um, and then I guess to a, a lesser extent, do you have Shane Lowry up there yet? I think he might get sneaky popular this week because the big boy seems to be trending. He does. And he's played well here before and after the renovation. Shane Lowry, um, I was on another podcast last week and someone asked me, like, who have you lost the most money on betting? It's got to be Shane Lowry because the guy will tease you all day long. And he's great for DFS. He'll finish 13th or 8th or whatever it may be. But I just have never caught one of the wins. And I always bet him the wrong weeks. 
had the Honda burn a few years ago. So it's just one of those guys that is like, I just can't get right. I like, what are your thoughts on Sahith? Um, I actually think he finished fifth here last year in his debut. I like him around the greens. It's There's a little bit of, so there's wider fairways, but if you spray it, you're in trouble, which is a little bit of a problem for him. Is he one of those guys that like a la a Ricky or someone who just is like, popular in general who people want to see that affects their ownership to the point where you're like I, I i can't play this guy he's not that good as people think he is yeah he got the the full the netflix full swing bump right everybody exactly. like, oh, I, I like this guy he's nice and so then everybody <laughs> wants to play him, right and i'm a i'm a i'm a tagala slut i like him but i'm never gonna play a chalky tagala and especially at a course where you need to be playing from the fairway right that guy i mean like he, yeah. sometimes when you watch him off the tee i mean he looks as bad as any player on the pga tour um <laughs> Uh, the, the rest of his game, he's magical. I mean, the guy's creative. He will grind his balls off for you. There's a lot of positive things about him. But man, his off the tee, uh, when it when it even gets a little off, it is it is world class bad, world class bad. And I I don't know if I can really take that here, right? I I, I just I, I don't think I can uh, really handle that. Yep. I uh I should mention that I did bet Connors. We talked about him. I love the way he sets up. I thought that he, I was actually pretty impressed with him at the PGA Championship. He caught some really shit breaks in terms of the bunkers but like i had initially when i saw him up there and i think everyone around me i was with a bunch of people who they're very very casual golf fans and they're like this guy's gonna like blow it he'll be out of here in two holes i'm like he's gonna last longer he's a lot better than you guys think he is Mm -hmm. and he held around and played really well was impressed with how he putted was impressed with his short game um and, and he held his ground i mean ultimately it it came crashing down in that bunker on 16, but I think it was just a mistake. It was a mental mistake more than it was execution. Victor made the same mental mistake. I think somebody else made it earlier in the week and they should have just played out with a sandwich and tried to make par. But I've been making, when you've been making every shot for three, four days at that point, you're just convinced that like, you're just going to be able to make the next one and uh, forget that you need to really come down steep and not catch that thing thin at all. And they both just at the exact same shot. I know it was crazy. It almost like plugged in the same freaking hole. It, I, it might, that, it, you know, I don't, I'm surely they fixed uh, Corey Connors fixed this hole. Cause if not, I'm pretty sure Victor Hovland landed the exact same one. Okay. Here's a guy that I bet that I think is another one of those weird ones where I can see him not being a great DFS play in general, but I think is a great outright bet. I bet C will Kim talk to me about him. Oh no. See, see was, C was a great play at everything. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I Siwoo is definitely well. I'm gonna play him this week at DraftKings, assuming he doesn't become like Donkey Chuck. But yeah. uh, but Siwoo, I love him. Siwoo is the ultimate. Like, this is why I wish I did more sports betting because like Siwoo's got to be another one of those guys. If you just played a hundred bucks on him every week uh, for the seven years I've been doing golf, anyways, you you you've got to be up a lot of money. Just mm-hmm. just bet that guy. Just know some of these guys. Just when they're on, they win. That's what they do, right? Sam Burns, Siwoo Kim. We could probably list. We could probably make a list of five or ten of those guys. Uh, I love Siwoo. Good course history. And Siwoo, more than maybe any guy on the PGA Tour, is a feel-good guy. When he's in his feel-goods and you get good Siwoo, the guy is legit a top-10 golfer in the world. I know that sounds like a really dramatic statement. He's not consistently that way, but when, he, when he's in his feel-good, he is. So uh, if you're going to – what is he at? I would assume 60 or something like that? 60 to 1, yes. Yeah. So if you're going to get Siwoo at 60, I mean, I love it. I do. He has great course history, so he's going to be in his feel-goods. He's been playing very well this year, more consistent than he's ever played. Uh, without giving up all of his great tee to green and ball striking numbers that he's had throughout his career. So Siwoo has my blessing. Love it. Um, yeah, same for me. Like I looked at, I was kind of looking at course history a little bit and in, in strokes gain total and some around the green stuff at Muirfield Village. 
And there are those guys right there, and it's it's Scott and Lowry, right, who both have pretty good course history and are pretty savvy around the green. Mm-hmm. Siebel's better than both of them, actually, like very quietly at Mirfield Village uh, he, in terms of if you combine the two around the green and strokes gain total. So mm-hmm. I think he's a great number. I love guys with outright betting who just understand winning and understand that it takes aggression um, and understand that it takes going for it. Like what he was able to do at Sony, like, I, like there are guys that will find themselves into contention and they'll sort of shift back in the third gear. And there's guys that will put the pedal to the floor and try mm-hmm. to go for a win. And they don't care if they bomb out into 18th, they want the first place and they're not trying to cash a T five. Um, See was that dude. If, if Siwoo is, you know, winning or in the top three on Sunday, he's going to fire every single flag. Whereas, let's look at the exact opposite. We literally saw the exact opposite of that at this course last year with Billy Ho. Throw it to the middle of the green, two-putt everything, make a par, play like a safe, boring bitch. Uh, that is not Siwoo. He will play to win the tournament by eight by eight strokes. Uh, and yeah. I love it about him. I love it. The guy's a killer. Uh, moving down here, Adam Scott's popular. He's seventy to one. Wyndham Clark, uh, sixty-six to one. I mean, the form is still kind of there. Keegan is at eighty to one. Kuchar's played great here. Cam Davis is an interesting one for me. I I won't bet it because I don't think he's going to win outright. But and just an interesting one from like perception, right? He opened last week at I think like sixty-six to one. Everyone and their mother hammered this guy down. I think when this thing teed off, he was twenty-eight to one. 66 to 28 is one of the biggest market swings I can remember in terms of betting golf. Like the dude literally chopped 40 points off his outright betting number. Now a week later, he's back in triple digits and a little bit more difficult field, but it's 120 guys. Yeah. Well, let's not forget that after Friday or after Thursday, everybody was probably patting themselves on the back. I believe he shot a bogey free minus two on Thursday, which was like very much in contention. Uh, (laughs) And then he just went out Friday and just shit the bed. Um, once again, that's why, like, you know, that's that, uh, recent form of a reaction. I can't put Cam Davis. His recent form is bad. No, he had a bad round. I don't know if that really undoes all the work that he was doing before that, because, you know, don't forget Cam Davis had, I don't know if it was an illness or an injury and he was out illness. playing like an asshole for a while. And he really seems to be trending back now. And I'm not going to let one bad Friday round in tough conditions convince me that he's now broken. Yeah, and he's had some show up spots, right? Like his his first win, I I was on him for that first win at like 150 to one. Super impressed with him, sort of getting in, and I thought played very well in a big moment for him at the Presidents Cup, like playing with Adam Scott. Like that was huge for a guy like it, a young player like that's confidence. And then just to shoot the low round of the day on Sunday at the PGA Championship, to top four, he got himself into the Masters. Like big things moving in the right direction. I think we all saw this ability with Cam Davis and he's got three really good assets that will win you PGA tours through, you know, PGA tour tournaments throughout your career. He drives it long. He wedges it really well. And he's a good putter. Like if you have those three things in your bag, if you hit good shots from a hundred yards, you drive it really far and you're above average putter, you're going to find tournaments where you're in contention and can eventually win. And I'm more apt to take him in triple digits off of a bad week than I am ever to sort of bet him at 28 to one, even in a weaker field. Right. I, I agree. I, I will say, I, when I think of Cam Davis, I would rather have him at a place that I think the winning score is going to be minus 20 than a place where I think the winning score is going to be like minus 10. That would be my only hang up this week. That's a good point. So here's a, here's a guy I want to ask you about that I get stuck on and I love and I've poured money into and he may never do it for me. But man, I love Denny McCarthy and I feel like he's a pretty good DFS play. 
it's all on the putter with him. It's a lot on the short game. Although I would say recently the ball striking numbers have trended a lot more positively. He's actually shown up to hard golf courses. He top five here last year. He's shown up to the U S opens. He was there at Riviera. Like he just has started to really form his ball striking into a much better player. And he's actually putting slightly below his baseline right now over the last 20 rounds versus his hundred round baseline. Um, He's 110 to one. Do I think he's going to win? No, but where are you at? Are you someone who plays Denny? Okay. So Denny is a guy that it, well, here's my rule. If his approach is on, I'm I, I'm a Denny whore. I love him when his approach is on because even his bad putting is still good putting. Right. Um, and, and a lot of people right. don't know this, but Denny actually plays long, difficult 72s very well. Like he's really good. Like he averages 0. 0.6 per round. So if he just plays average this week on a course that fits those requirements, you would expect him to pick up 2.4 strokes on the field overall. Like that would be his baseline average. That's really good for a course that everybody thinks he wouldn't be a good fit at. Um, the only concern I have is that like, what's Denny's upside. I feel like his upside is like, like he could have the week of his life T3, T4. I just could never really see him ever winning, but I could definitely see him being in contention. I don't know if you're an each way guy. Uh, and if you are, uh, if it would take, if it would play the top five or top eight, but if you are, he would be a guy I would consider each way. Yeah, he's a guy that I play a lot of matchups in. I play a lot of top 20s. I don't do each ways. I usually feel like he's given a pretty favorable matchup, especially on these harder sort of setups in terms of majors and elevated events where he's shown to be pretty effective at them. Um, but yeah, right now, just looking at your screen there, I would definitely take him in a heads up match with Grio. Grio's in a letdown yeah. spot this week. So give me the Denny versus Emiliano. Big time letdown for Grio. Uh, so Denny is. It's I've always been stuck on this point where I'm not a good player. I'm a nine handicap, I, 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 but I play a lot of golf, right? And I play a lot of these matches. And what I typically find in terms of playing golf is the guy who in your group, if you're playing with 12 guys and you're playing a money game or a skins game, the guy that usually takes it down is usually the best putter. And the, how you can't be the best putter on tour for six straight years and not put together one week where you can gain seven strokes ball striking and potentially win a tournament. That's sort of what I've been sticking to and been wrong on for the history of this show. And that's why he'll win the John Deere in a few weeks. Would love it. I'll be there for it. <laughs> I, and by the way, I want you to know you just said something I found high, highly offensive. I'm like a 13 handicap and I'm an above average golfer. So <laughs> you're a nine handicap and you're a bad golfer. That. I need to reevaluate uh, what's a good golfer anymore. Well, I think it's all relative. I guess in the group I play, I'm in the sort of bottom half. Maybe I need to get yeah. some. I, I need to. We need to hang out, baby. Yeah, you, you, yeah. Down you, you could, you could, you could wipe me all over the course, and you'll be feel, you'll be feeling like Tiger Woods out there. Um, what I was going to ask you, Woodland or English? I mean, man, uh, God, I, I I'm a big rope pack guy, and I actually kind of like guys coming back, especially a veteran guy like English after like a Sunday meltdown. Um, because yeah, like exactly. he's got, he's got, he's like, you know, he's an old man Harris, Harris English ain't no whippersnapper. Uh, and I think he, you know, he's played enough golf to realize that, ah, okay, I let that Sunday round get away from me. But when I see Harris English in good form at long, hard courses, I mean, I just always think like Harris English U S open. Right. And this is kind of like a U.S. open life this week. Um, and so I, I, I do like him, but at the same time, my model, which, uh, is just, uh, just loving Gary Woodland this week. I mean, he just, I mean, the guy just is like. Um, but like unbelievably better than everybody else in that range. Um, and the guy, you know, uh, I actually like him when he gets the damn driver out of his hand. And I think you could see a lot of Gary Woodland three woods mm. this week. Cause he actually is a more strategic golfer than people give him credit for. He's not, you know, the boring track man golfer that everybody thinks he is, you know, he's the guy that hits that beautiful little stinger. I mean, that's, that's creativity. So 
I, I, I guess my answer, I'm going to bitch out. I'm going to say both. Um, I like Woodland too. Another guy, classic bounce back spot after a, after fucking everyone, uh, at the PJ championship. I, he's just a great long iron player. So you're right. Mm-hmm. If he can take that three iron, four iron and hit that twice into long par fours. Um, I don't mind it there. I'm going to bring up just real quickly that one last question before we, we wrap up the show here. I'm going to share my screen. I want to share my fantasy national screen because there is this $6,500 range. And I don't normally do this, but I think I have six guys all starred and I want you to assist me in who to take here. All right. Eckroat, Norin, Stevens, Hughes, Batia, Neesmith, even Hubbard. Let's put Hubbard in the mix. I think these guys are all pretty good players and all could potentially like top 25 this week. And I don't know which I have no idea which one it's going to be. I have a feeling I'm going to not do Batia because he's going to eat up so much popularity wise. I think Mackenzie Hughes to me is the sleeper one because I think he's actually just as good, if not better than these guys long term on difficult courses. And I don't think anybody's going to play him. What do you do with this range? First of all, if I were doing an outright bet in this range, I would probably do Mackenzie Hughes. The guy, for whatever reason, I, I think he just says, screw your models. I don't care. It's just really long, difficult courses where the winning score is minus 8 to minus 10. When yeah. Mackenzie Hughes gets his next win, it will come at a course like that. I would bet you money on that, that that would happen before he would get one at a, a birdie fest type course, right? Yep. Um, so I, I like that. I think of all these guys, if you're just playing straight talent, I think uh, Ed Goat is definitely uh, the most talented of these guys, but I don't really think he's at the point of his career where he's ready to win. Uh, you got Sam Steve. Yeah, I love Sam Stevens this week. The guy is uh, the guy is just he's just a ball striker, man. And he's really good on these long, difficult courses. So I like him. Makes uh, a lot I of yeah, and I was warm on Neesmith and Batia last week, but uh, I, there's just enough red flags for me there to to make me pump the brakes a little bit, most notably just how bad they are at uh, putting on uh, fast surfaces um, and, and bent greens. Like, there's just not a lot of hope there uh, that either of them are going to be great there, nor are either of them even particularly good around the greens. So even if they're doing a bunch of other stuff well, I, it's just hard to think that half of their game is is so below average and they could still win. Yeah. I like all these guys at 65. Do you go much lower than this in your lineups? Do you have anyone down in the 62, 63? Sam Bennett, maybe? Any interest? Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, th- that getting cute stuff. I leave, I leave that I leave that for uh, for the others. You know, like if, if a guy that just, just looking, without even really diving into the stats, just off the top of my head, Matt Wallace. Uh, anytime it's a yeah. long, difficult course, I always tell you, nobody will grind their balls off for you more than Matt Wallace. When he's good, Matt Wallace. Matt Wallace is one of those Siwoo Kim type guys. You got to get a good Matt Wallace week. But if you get one, he's a guy, and I'm pretty sure he has like a third place finish here before too. He does. He so does. This is he not a, a this is not a place game. he is afraid to grind his balls off. Um, and you, my boy Chris Goddard, there you go, Boomer Sooner. Uh, he's he's finally back. I don't. I honestly, I'm so bad at knowing all the qualifications and everything, but we haven't seen him in a while. And uh, at that price, I'm in. He won the uh, Nicholas Award or something last year, which got him a sponsor's exemption uh, into good. this event for winning that uh, from Jack, basically. But I am very surprised. We have not seen him get more sponsors exemptions. The way that they throw these things out, like there's people that want to see him play. He's extremely talented. Mm-hmm. Um, get him in some events. Like let him try, let him play four or five events. And if he top fives in one, which I think that he has the ability to do, he's going to be up and down. But if he plays really good, we've seen the talent level there. Like let him, let him try to get in there. Absolutely. I thought, I, I thought he was like up and coming and then he just like disappeared on me for the past year. Yeah. Um, awesome stuff, man. We'll tell everyone where they can find uh, some of your stuff on the YouTube channel uh, when the shows are set to go off this week. 
Yeah, so over on YouTube, just the Degenerate 75 on YouTube. I do the live stream uh, every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. That's Central Time Zone. And uh, I do a course preview show, which I started putting out Monday, uh, going over some initial pricing thoughts and stuff like that. And then, of course, I do Showdown uh, on Friday and Saturday nights, which I've turned into a stream because people like to do Q&A. So that's where you find me. If you don't know about uh, PGA Showdown, just try it one time. It'll change your life. <laughs> extremely good man pleasure to absolutely have you on tonight it was great to talk to you and get to know you a little bit better i wish you all the best you're killing the youtube world uh make sure you give this guy's channel a follow one of the most entertaining and probably like to be honest i told you before the show one of the uh actually like trusted best dfs players that i think are out there that really sort of puts his money where his mouth is in terms of the content so i'm um, happy to have you on thanks again my pleasure brother all right talk to you soon later man All right, guys, that wraps up the show for the week. As I mentioned earlier, PLT is live on the website. That is like the number one way I think that you can support the show. I make like a couple bucks on the shirts, but I love to just see people uh, have them. And, and people like Ted and you, the great guys who are out there who support the show as always. Um, thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's week, if you came here through James's channel, um, I appreciate you stopping over. Uh, would love for you to subscribe to the channel. Give me a follow on Twitter at Tour Picks. This has been the Preferred Lines Golf Podcast. Uh, enjoy the memorial. I hope that you guys hit a winner. I'll catch you next week. I'm out of here. Peace.